Well, good morning. Our world's gotten pretty divided over time, right? It seems like recently it's just gotten worse and worse. If we want to look at the obvious example, we would look to politics, where you've got two parties, two different ideologies of liberal and conservatives. And, and right now, anything that you look at, they're pretty far apart, pretty divided, right? Recently, we saw a division on how people handled the pandemic. You know, we, we see it in sports teams, colleges. I mean, people have their teams and, and rivals, and they don't always get along. I mean, it happens locally, too, with our schools here. Like, I've had kids from Bloomington North, and they don't like kids from Bloomington South. I'll tell you. Like, oof. Like, we went down there to watch a uh, concert or something, and uh, they, they were like, we don't like this place. I was like, it looks pretty. It's nice and big. They're like, they're rich and uppity down here. I was like, okay, well, sorry, your school doesn't look this good. I, I grew up in Speedway, so I don't really care. Um, anyway, uh, recently, though, in, we, we've, we've, we're in the midst of one of the great unifications that the world has seen, I believe. Uh, you know, the uh, NFL and Taylor Swift fans. <laughs> They're coming together because Taylor Swift and the tight end of the Kansas City Chiefs, Travis Kelsey, seem to be dating. Uh, and because uh, she was at the game last Sunday, which apparently is important enough to report on ESPN. <laughs> unity. <laughs> That's what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about Unity. How two sides, which were so different, so far apart, were brought together in unity into one body, one group, one people. And so uh, we're in our fourth week of our Ephesians series. Can you believe we've already been at this for a month? And uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus. It's a city that's filled with a wide variety of people. Uh, The city's population was around 250,000 people, and that included a pretty large Jewish contingent. But a lot of them, most of them, were were probably Gentile or non-Jewish people. There were people from all over the ancient world. You had Lydians, Ionians, Greeks. The native people were called Anatolians. There were folks from Rome, too, or from Italy. And and, uh, since it was under Roman control as part of the Roman Empire. And what we see, what we're going to see in this week's passage, is that Paul is reminding the believers in Ephesus that they were once separate. They were... You know, totally separate from each other, but now through Christ, as a group, they have a new identity in the family of God. So we start by looking at the former way, and we'll look at the first couple verses in the passage that Austin read. Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Since Paul starts this passage with the word therefore, let's go back and remind ourselves what we looked at last week in the previous passage of Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. So Paul, in that passage, is focused on the individual believer and how the individual believer went from a life of sin in which they were spiritually dead to a life in Christ where God raised them with Christ and seated them with him in the heavenly realms, expressing his kindness. We saw that it was by grace and by grace alone, not by works, that we believers have been saved. 
It's a gift from God. Again, it's not by works, but it is for works, the good works which God has prepared in advance for them to do. So Paul focused on the individual, but now he moves on to uh, the larger group. And it's formatted pretty similarly. He starts by showing what their previous identity was. He says, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth are called uncircumcised. So let's pause there and unpack this a little bit. The people he's writing to are Gentiles by birth. The, the Greek word that's used here is ethnos, and it's where we get our word ethic from, ethnic from, or ethnocentrism, things like that. And it's used in a couple of different ways. The first way is that it's a body of persons united by kinship, culture, common traditions, like a nation or a people. The other way that it's used is when referring to people groups who are foreign to a specific group of people. And so in this case, it's non-Israelites or Gentiles and how they are foreign to Israelites. Uh, Israelites. So they've been called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision. Circumcision was a ritual prescribed in the Old Testament, which was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. I'm not going to tell you what circumcision is. I'm just going to tell you, don't Google it. Look it up in a dictionary if you have to. Anyway. <laughs> every, every newborn Jewish male would be circumcised on the eighth day. It was like a sign that you were in. And, and if you didn't have that sign, then you weren't part of the group, right? At least for the guys. Now, those who were called the uncircumcised, uh, it really wasn't like a pleasant nickname. It, it was more said with derision. So Paul is like, remember who you were before. You were outsiders. And here's what that meant. First, it meant that you were separate from Christ. Now, Christ is the Greek word which translates the Hebrew title Messiah. And it is a title. Both Christ and Messiah come from verbs, which mean to anoint with sacred oil. And so as titles, what it means is the anointed one. All throughout the Old Testament, you see the promises of a savior and a deliverer for the Israelites. And they called him the Messiah. They were continuously looking for this savior. He was their hope in the future, the hope for salvation. But the Messiah, the Christ, was for the Israelites. And so those who were Gentiles, they didn't have that. They didn't have Christ. They were separate from him. They were also excluded from citizenship with Israel. The word for excluded is also translated as separated in Ephesians 4 and alienated in Colossians 1. Gentiles never have had a citizenship with Israel. They didn't belong to the group. And because they didn't belong to the group, they didn't get any of the privileges that came with belonging to the group. But, of course, they wouldn't have been seeking this out because Israel was really just another Roman-controlled area like Ephesus was. So politically, it really didn't make any difference. Difference really came in what God meant to the Israelites. But for the most part, Gentiles were excluded and they were alienated from the citizenship in Israel. Not only that, but they were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Covenants defined as a sacred kinship bond between two parties, ratified by swearing an oath. It was a custom that was practiced uh, in the near, ancient Near East, Greco-Roman cultures as well. It was mainly used to form social, political bonds between individuals or groups. There are a number of covenants in the Bible, and especially those which God is involved with. The first and one of the most well-known is the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. 
Lord renews his covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai, following his rescue of the Israelites from captivity in Egypt. Lord also makes a covenant with David, which said, among other things, that his throne would be everlasting. Gentiles had no access to the covenants. They were foreign to them. There are two more things the Gentiles didn't have. First of these was hope. For those outside of God's salvation, there is no hope. We talked about this a little bit last week where we were looking at the individual and and how when they were living in their sin and transgressions, they were dead in those. And there comes a time where a choice has to be made, whether or not you're going to follow God and live for him or you won't. And that choice will come due at some point. What's worse for these people is that they were worshiping false deities, false gods. They were being led down the wrong path, down the path that leads to death apart from the true God. Like I've mentioned a few times, Ephesus was a major place of worship for the Greek goddess Artemis. But she, along with all the other Greek gods, were false gods. So they had no hope, and they really had no idea. The other thing the Gentiles didn't have was God. They were without God in the world. The Ephesians believed in many gods, but not the one true God. To help illustrate this, I want to read from Paul's letter to Romans. To the Romans. In Romans 1, verses 18 through 23, he writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human a mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. They didn't believe in, they didn't desire the one true God. So they were without God in this world. And so with no hope or God, it's a pretty tough way to live. But that's what they used to be. But it's not who they are anymore. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ... You who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Thematically, if you remember from last week or just look up in the first part of chapter 2, it's similar, right, to that previous passage. Paul's writing about the individuals in the first part and and how we were all once dead in our transgressions and sins. And then in verse 4, Paul writes, but God, right? The similarities are are still here. And he writes, before you were excluded, you were separate, you were without hope and God, but now in Christ Jesus. That's how you once were, 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says, you aren't part of the family. You weren't. You were, you were outsiders. You had no hope. But because of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, everything that separated the Gentiles from God is gone. And of course, it's not because of anything that they did. It's not any of their efforts, but because of the blood of Jesus. Paul then goes on to explain the union that, that the Gentiles and the Jewish believers now have because of Christ, and, and he starts with peace. He says that Jesus himself is our peace. True peace was broken when sin entered the world. Peace isn't just a cessation, cessation of hostilities, but it can refer to a wholeness or well-being in general, as, as well as political and interpersonal peace. And it is Christ's peace we now have because of his death, burial, and resurrection. On the night he was arrested, Jesus was giving final instructions to his disciples. He says this in John 14, 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In particular, Christ has brought peace between the two groups, Jewish and Gentile. Paul writes that Christ has made the two groups one, and he's destroyed the barrier, the, the dividing wall of hostility between them. And that was difficult for the early church to grasp, too. Like, that was hard for them. It was something Paul had to deal with in a lot of the places that he went. The division between the two groups was gone, and yet some wanted others to still become like them. Like Some of the Jewish Christians, Jewish believers, they, they went in behind Paul, and after he would minister to a place and he left to continue spreading the gospel, he, these people would come in and, and they would want these newborn Christians to start following Jewish laws and customs. And, and Paul fought against this. You read it in a lot of his letters. He's saying, you know, we're not divided anymore. We're one. We've got unity in Christ. All those other things, we don't need them anymore because it's all been fulfilled in Christ. There's no longer a distinction. All those things that divided us, all those things that keep us separated, they're gone. We are one in Christ Jesus, and that's what Paul's talking about here to the Ephesians. He says that barrier has been destroyed. How? Well, Christ set aside in his flesh the law. Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law. And so, as Warren Wearsby writes, Jesus removed that legal barrier that separated Jew from Gentile. Why did Christ do this? Well, Paul writes that in verse 15. He says, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Romans 10, 12 through 13 says this, for there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Galatians 3, 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It is one new humanity in Christ. And with this new humanity, there's peace. Or at least there should be peace. Now that two groups have become one body, Christ has reconciled them all to God. Paul writes in Romans that all have sinned fallen short of the glory of God, Right? That sin deserved God's wrath. There was enmity between God and mankind. But through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, we, all of humanity, is reconciled to God. 
And that means that there is a restoration, as one writer puts it, a restoration of friendly relationships and of peace, where before there had been hostility and alienation. Christ took on himself the full wrath of God, the punishment that we deserve for all of our sins. He took that on the cross where he died, so that our sins were paid in full once for all. We are reconciled to God through the cross, and it's there that he put to death the hostility between the groups, creating unity. Paul concludes this section by saying that Christ came and preached peace, to those who were far away, and peace to those who were near. Jesus is our peace. He made peace, and he preached peace. As Wearsby writes, he could have come to declare war, but in his grace, he came with a message of peace. And think about when Jesus was born, and the chorus of angels appeared before the shepherds. What did they sing? Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Luke 2.14. And then Paul in verse 18 says it is through Christ that both have access to the Father by one spirit. So before, remember, those who were excluded from citizenship in Israel, they were without hope, they were without God in the world. But through Christ, they now have direct access to the Father through the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 12.13, Paul writes that we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. We are now one body of believers, not two distinct bodies. And that one body has access to God through the Holy Spirit who is working in his people to transform them and empower them. And remember as well, the spirit is the seal that we've been marked with that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1. He writes in Ephesians 1.14 about the Holy Spirit. He is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And as a result of all these things, the identities of those who are far from God has now changed. And we have a new identity. Ephesians 2.19-20 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So before Christ, the Gentiles were foreigners and strangers to God. Through Christ's death and resurrection on the cross, they've now been made fellow citizens with God's people. They're no longer foreigners or strangers, but now they've got a new identity, a new citizenship. Instead of two separate nations, they're one nation. Paul emphasizes the unifying work of Christ in his repeated use of the word one in this passage. You see it throughout. Two groups are now one. There's one new humanity. There's one body, one spirit. And again, as Wearsby writes, all spiritual distance and division have been overcome by Christ. Now there is one nation whose citizenship is in heaven. And more than one nation, we are one family. Paul writes that we have become members of God's household. As one family, the Lord has become our Father. And we also become one temple, as the next verses talk about. Paul uses a building to help illustrate this. And 
how he's how God is bringing all believers together in unity. He he begins by saying that there is a foundation, right? Because all good buildings have to have a good foundation. Foundation is so important. A strong foundation will give your structure strength and durability, resilience. And the foundation for the church are the apostles and the prophets, those who are doing the work proclaiming the good news of Christ's salvation. They're the foundation that the church is built on. And Christ himself referenced this when he was talking to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. He said to Peter, he says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. One of the most important parts of the foundation in masonry was the cornerstone. It's oftentimes a stone that was kind of like worked to be have like a 90-degree uh, corner to it. And it was the first stone that would be laid in the foundation. That, that stone was what was all the other stones would be lined up to. So you'd know that you'd have a 90-degree uh, wall building, two walls. Everything would be lined up properly. You'd have the best stability that you could. Well, there's a cornerstone in this building, too. And that cornerstone that the rest of the building is built from is Christ Jesus. First Peter 2, 6, Peter quotes Isaiah when he says this. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Christ is our cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation and in Christ, the whole building is joined together and then rises to be a holy temple in the Lord. Paul writes to the Corinthians about God's people becoming a temple as well. In 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17, where he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. The temple was an important part of Jewish culture and life. But when Christ died, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies in the temple from the rest of it was torn in two, which apparently was no mean feat. Big curtain. And then in AD 70, as was predicted by Jesus, the temple would be destroyed. And it hasn't been rebuilt. Dome on the Rock is there now in that place. <coughs> There's one wall. I just coughed into my mic. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but there, there's like the Western Wall still there, and, and the Jewish people there still go and pray to that at, at that wall, not to the wall, but at the wall. And but but the temple is not there anymore. And Paul says though that the unified followers of Jesus are now the temple where God's spirit dwells. They are being joined together, built together on that foundation of Christ and his apostles and prophets into a dwelling for God to live by his spirit, a holy temple in the Lord. We were once part of that group that was far from God, excluded from citizenship and the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in this world. But in Christ... Through the blood he shed on the cross, we have been brought near and given a new identity. He has made us part of the body of which he is the head. 
We are part of the new building of which he is the cornerstone. We have unity with other believers, uh, unity that we need to embrace. It's the same unity that Jesus prayed for on the night of his arrest in John 17, verse 20, where he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. This is, he's talking about the apostles and us. All of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This past weekend was that worship night concert, and it's a great night where a lot of people from a lot of different churches just came together and worshiped one God in unity. We may not all have the same beliefs on you know, what we would call secondary issues, but we all love Christ. We put everything else aside, and that's really how we should be as a church both locally and globally. We should be in unity. We start here at Maple Grove and with each other. It's one of the core things for us here at Maple Grove is that we would have unity in the believers. We are united as one in Christ. One body, one spirit, one nation, one family. We take care of one another. We lift each other up, we pray for each other, we help out wherever we can. And we love one another so that everyone will know that we are Christ's disciples. We can truly embrace what David wrote then in Psalm 133.1, where he says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, that is our prayer that we, just starting here at Maple Grove, that, that we would find unity amongst this family here. And we know that we can because we are in you, Lord, and we know that, that you have prayed for us in Jesus, that, that Christ prayed for us when he prayed that all of his believers would be unified. And, and we see the unity in the Trinity, Lord, the everlasting love in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and Lord, we, we just want even a shadow of that here. Father, we know that we are being built into a temple that is where you live. Your spirit lives. We know the chief cornerstone of that is Christ himself. That's, that's the only thing we can build off of. He's the only thing we can build off of. Father, we know that we need to be need to have unity to be able to do that to be able to be a strong house. And we start here at Maple Grove, but it needs to expand beyond us. We need your church to be your church, to stand out in this world, but to be unified. We may disagree on things, but so long as we, we believe the, the truth 
that Christ came and died and was resurrected for our salvation. We can get around some of the other stuff that we disagree on. So Lord, I, I pray that we would model that well here at Maple Grove. That we would be unified and be in unity with the church at large. Because that, I think, is that's what your plan was from the beginning. So that other people will see that and and will be drawn to you, Lord. Not to us, but to you. Thank you so much for inviting us along in that plan. And we just pray that you would help us do it well. Thank you so much for Christ, because it's only through him and his death, his burial, and his resurrection that we are able to do this. It's the only way that we have access to you. It's the only way that we can have the power of the Spirit living inside of us. It's the only way that all of this, because in that temple, the veil was torn when Christ died on the cross. We take the time in our service now to remember that and to live in that as we take communion. The blood, which is represented by the the juice and the body that was broken that was represented, that's represented by the bread. We take those emblems now to just remember what was done on the cross for our sake. Thank you so much, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.